Take a network break. We've cooked up a fresh batch of virtual donuts for enjoyment as we dash through a raft of IT news, including new products from Extreme, Arista, and Cisco, and a decent bit of FU. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Just visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak and get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. And join the Packet Pushers and Glueware for a live stream virtual event on June 28th. Glueware and customers are going to discuss how Glueware enables real-world network automation and new capabilities, including a network topology tool. You can sign up for that free event at packetpushers.net slash live. Uh, last but not least, stay tuned. After the news, we've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're going to be talking about zero-trust network access and how it's evolving to provide more comprehensive and consistent security. All right, before we get into the news, Greg, we got some FU or follow-up from uh, some of our stories and commentary last week, and we're starting with uh, 5G instead of Wi-Fi on campus. Yeah, uh, so uh, this is a, we got a lot of follow-up this week, which is great. We love it, right, which actually makes me think and go back. Um, but last week I sort of said that there might be a place for private 5G as a competitor to Wi-Fi. And I did couch my statements in a lot of, what ifs and maybe it and perhaps mites and stuff, but um, still provoked a pretty strong response. Uh, let's take the first one. Um, he wrote in with a whole bunch of points, so I'm going to address each point separately. And he said, you know, let's say you build out 5G for your campus and a student buys a tablet that only has Wi-Fi in it, uh, you know, and what do you do then? Uh, so my point there is that laptops today only have Wi-Fi I still don't know why they don't have 5G. Have you ever I have wondered? not actually wondered because Wi-Fi is just so ubiquitous that I think, of course, and 5G is still so new and uh, a little vapory that, yeah. For desktops? Yeah. Yeah, for desktops, certainly. But for laptops, Wi-Fi, why not 5G? So you can use 5G wherever you are. But as you say, Wi-Fi is so ubiquitous. But there's a case to be made that you could put 5G in a laptop, just there's no particular motivation to do so at this time or not right. sufficient. Um, but... You know, uh, don't also forget that 5G can include Wi-Fi and there is a number of 5G solutions that do wire handoff right. to Wi-Fi. And we've done podcasts, I think, with Aruba. Aruba's one of them. Yeah, they do have a 5G handoff mm. between Wi-Fi and a 5G network, yeah. The, when you cross a boundary, mm. then they automatically switch you over to maintain that connectivity. Yeah, and the identity that's contained in the SIM card is then used to cover your identity on the Wi-Fi and vice versa. So there are solutions. They're not perfect here in the sense that, you know, you would still end up with a Wi-Fi and a 5G network. And, you know, um, the, one of the points that the person made is how do they get access in the basement of the building? If you have areas where the 5G can't reach, potentially you fill it with Wi-Fi in mm -hmm. this situation. Um, but do keep in mind that the open spectrum for private 5G is 3.5 gigahertz if you're going to use that. Otherwise, you might get a license to use other parts of the spectrum, but 3.5 gigahertz has much better penetration than the Wi-Fi 5 gigahertz for a couple of reasons. One is the spectrum's better, and the second one is that uh, uh, 5G can transmit at up to 3 watts, whereas Wi-Fi can only transmit at up to 100 milliwatts, and so you get a lot better penetration with mobile uh, in that case. Uh, then it goes on to sort of say, what happens if a student bought 5G but with no data plan? That sounds a bit odd in this era. I don't know that, you know, that's a problem. But it may be that, the and this is what we're actually seeing, is if you want to connect to a 5G network, you actually issue SIM cards. If you're a university, you just give people SIM cards and they can connect to your private 5G network and that covers their identity and then you can add and delete from those SIMs as right. you want, right? 
Um, but I think what he was also making the point was what happens if that person uh, wants to roam on and off? And when I talked about MVNO, so mobile virtual network operators, which are people who run mobiles on top of others, um, that sort of roaming scenario would be if you have your own 5G stations, you might go into partnership with telcos. I don't know if the telcos would want to go into te- into partnership with you. That's a right. different story. But in potentially there's a there's a long-term scenario where once you've got a 5G and it's all software and it's all, you know, virtual, then potentially you can upgrade it over time and then you might want to say, well, my campus, R1, AT&T says, well, we want to use your 5G towers. And you say, sure, come on in. But if there's anybody else out there with some other uh, telco that's not necessarily covered, then they would just be covered as right. normal, right? So it's not like you having a 5G tower prevents you having a 5G tower in place. It just means that they work as normal. You're just saying we've got our own towers on site. They would be stronger, faster, and use less battery power because you're closer mm-hmm. to the towers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then you have a whole bunch of other questions sort of, they're all very practical sort of thing. Uh, but basically what they come down to is the points that I was making about private 5G is I see the market going down two parts. There's a short-term game and a long-term game. If you think about it, the short-term game is because telcos take decades to make decisions to buy stuff. So we're seeing telcos deploy 5G mostly because the governments are giving them funding to buy Mm -hmm. 5G. (laughs) And, um, you know, so they're they're putting out some 5G because the government is encouraging to do so and they want to do some pilots and trials and so forth. But there's not it's not modern 5G in the sense that they've torn down all the old 4G and they're using software-enabled infrastructure, maybe based around OpenRAN, maybe it's based around something Nokia or Ericsson's doing. Um, but in the short term, you still want to make money. So what you might want to do is test the market for private 5G and say, here's private 5G, gives me a way to go out there and create a, a market around the 5G technology I've got and sell it. So small scale decisions that enterprises make may happen quickly and generate early revenue. Long 5G is when markets start to fit into specific niches. So if you think uh, what we're seeing today is that a lot of uh, supermarkets are putting in 5G, mining sites and industrial sites are putting in 5G uh, so that people can walk around with mobile phone type smartphones connected to a private network and they're using them to monitor, to operate. So where before they would give people laptops and uh, tablets, they're now using 5G. And that makes sense because the 5G signal, again, is much is potentially much better in those environments. And in the case of mining environments where you're so remote from everywhere, the Wi-Fi signal doesn't go very far, 100 metres from a base station, and you're on a mine and it's kilometres right, across. Right, right, yes. Know, so. And you want to put, you know, 5G monitors in trucks and cars and, you know, right, mining equipment and you yeah, want to watch and, water. Yeah. Well, also right. sensors, you know, how much water exactly, is sitting underneath yes. a mine, right? You know, uh, the doors open and shut, you mm-hmm. know, that type of stuff. So, and then of course, as I said before, 5G can integrate Wi-Fi and use it in combination. Roaming is not well understood at this time because it's not something that's generally done. It's usually more complicated for the telcos to put a base station in than you think. Mm-hmm. So I think that's more of an aspiration than something that would actually happen, but the potential for it exists. So you wouldn't want right, to discount right. it. So, um, but I think, I think the ultimate thing there is that would Wi-Fi beat 5G for private network applications? And history says not. So if you look at the history of networking, we've generally tended to just pick one technology for something and not support multiple competing standards. So 
does Wi-Fi offer something that 5G does not and therefore we keep it? Do we still keep it in corporate offices and, and high schools and stuff like that? Or do we switch to using 5G because that's widely deployed? That is a viable argument in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it seems like for you know, 5G taking over Wi-Fi, we have that chicken and egg problem of it's basically down to the client device. If client devices like tablets, laptops, and so on start coming with a 5G radio built mm. in, then yes, I think you could start making a stronger case for private mm. 5G or even just 5G everywhere. But in the enterprise case, you need those devices to actually make it happen, I yeah. think. But then there's the corporate office, which is one solution, which maybe stays Wi-Fi, but there are other options available for other sites. If we're going to have two different network types, does it make sense? Or do we end up converging on 5G over, say, a 10 to 20-year time frame, right? or even longer? That's more where I'm pushing for. Yeah. Right. And, you know, at Packet Pushers, we do try to take a sort of future uh, forward-looking uh, eye to the market, and maybe this is a good conversation for you and Jonah and Heavy Strategy yeah. at some point. It's, it's not, you know, it's not like rush out today and start your 5G training. That's not. No. <laughs> I mean, it's a, if it, there are you know, specific use cases, manufacturing, heavy industry, that kind of thing, particularly around you know sensors and uh, IoT devices, where you can make a case for it. But your enterprise, your hospital, your uh, you know university campus, Wi-Fi, I think, still has the stronger mm -hmm. position. Uh, so let's move on to FU number two, talking about resellers. Um, you and I constantly go back and forth on the the fate of resellers, the value of resellers. This person saying that. Um, out of university and at a startup, getting new systems and gear from the cloud isn't that hard, and they often prefer to do it that way as opposed to going to a reseller because they can just click a few buttons and get what they need as opposed to having to work with a person and and all of the <laughs> the the, the uh, friction that can come that way. Yeah, and that's a practitioner-centric a view. You just want to get on. You don't want to have to, to wait. And largely this is because companies don't buy assets until after they need them instead of predicting what they need and then making preparation to buy technology assets ahead of the, the demand. Um and part of what cloud offers is the ability to outsource that pre-purchasing function to somebody else. And they get some advantages in the sense that they can scale up and share resources efficiently and they can put more VMs, you know, on a single machine. And uh -huh. so there's that, right? There's that part of it. You're effectively outsourcing the purchasing, timely purchasing, if you want to take that angle. Um but at the same time, cloud and SaaS also represents low upfront costs. However, companies may go broke quicker when the cash flow fails. So let me try and talk about this. If if you have assets that you owned, owned assets can be sweated in lean times and then funded in the good times. So if you have a business which is a cyclic model, you are much better off buying assets and holding them so that you can spend when the times are good and not spend when the times are bad. Because if your cash flow is bad, right. you have to tighten up. What are you going to do? Spend less on the cloud? No, you're already beholden to the cloud. You know? <laughs> and so... As far as I can tell, cloud costs only yes, go well, up. Yes, certainly haven't gone down much in the time. Uh, so if your business model is dash and cash, then costs don't matter. So if I'm talking about like a Silicon Valley startup where your business model is to grow and grow and fail or grow and grow and make a profit doesn't really matter, then cloud represents an advantage all the way around. If your business has no capital to grow then cloud makes good sense because what you're doing then is shifting the purchasing to OPEX. Um, and then you just have to make sure you have sufficient cash flow to pay for cloud. Because if you don't pay your cloud bill, your IT just gets turned off and your company's dead. 
Whereas before, right. companies could go into a lean mode, stop purchasing, sweat what they had. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah. So yeah. if you're in a company and you're making the cloud decision, making career plans about an employer, and you're looking at it, make make some career plans with foresight, right? But uh, that. But here's one that's a little bit more uh, sensitive. Let me just say, if you're a Gen X, say if you're a young person, say under 25, and the person does preface his conversation with as someone in a startup company and with only two years out of university. So there's two things there. One is he's in a startup company and only two years out of university, and he's this is his view, which is absolutely a valid view, by the way. I'm just sitting here thinking, if I was a young person today and coming in to the market and saying, the cloud is a, often a chore, you know, purchasing stuff is a chore and it feels outdated and sometimes I just don't want to talk to a reseller. I just want to pay for the product and get it and try it. Whereas people like me who have 30 years of experience will have a better understanding of the process of purchasing and operating um, their personal and professional lives. So in my personal life, I make a point of buying stuff and owning it generally. Am I right for that, Drew, <laughs> in an era when I can rent a lot of stuff or is that just me being a grumpy old, you know, person. I don't know. I, I'm tempted to say get off my I mean, lawn. Um, but I agree that, uh, and I don't think this is a Gen X issue. I'm Gen X and I'm 50. Yeah, I, so I think it's the, more of the millennial Gen mm -hmm. Y, but, um, it's, yeah, uh, the, the younger people are very used to very frictionless interactions, uh, getting stuff and any amount of friction sort of immediately frustrates them. So there could be a kind of, I grew up just pressing a button and getting what I wanted. So running into hurdles does feel, you know, harder and ickier to yeah, them. Yeah. It's just, Interesting point that I think the underlying issue here is that if there's a generation gap and younger people sort of have learned to just, you know, use rental services, Uber and, you know, home delivery, and you can click. And these are things that you and I didn't experience at that age. It would right. be interesting to right. have to consider that perhaps the purchasing model is just because we are familiar with it. Now, that doesn't make either one wrong or right. I'm just saying. I think it's a business model question. Buying and owning assets has the advantage you can sweat the assets. But, you know. Right. <laughs> and the millennial and Gen Ys are going to be horrified when they finally graduate uh, up the organization and go into the data center and mm. see the mainframe sitting there still chugging out core business applications. Like, what? We have one <laughs> yeah, of those? Right. Good yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there is the, you know, if you don't have capital to buy IT, you can always finance it, which is what people did and do. They still yep. do, you know, if they want to break it down into four years of payments, uh, finance organizations actually do that. So the finance division in your company often will internally finance or externally finance substantial computer purchases. You just may or may not be aware of it. So it is an interesting, just speculation there. I really appreciated the point here and saying it's just easier to go and get it in the cloud and I don't have to deal with purchasing and budgets and stuff. I can just get it and going and so forth. Um, but maybe that, is that a cultural, is that a generational gap? I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear what other people think. Yeah, that's an interesting mm. point. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got a, an, an, uh, an insight on that, let us know at packapersons.net slash FU. Uh, our last FU for this episode, we were talking about VMware, uh, their new threat analytics product that's essentially hoovering up all of the, uh, telemetry and data they get from other VMware products. Uh, and this person says that it does give them deep insight into how customers are deploying the full stack of their products, especially in light of the Broadcom acquisition. If they want to focus on their biggest customers, this could give VMware even more leverage with those customers because they'll see how customers are using VMware products through this security uh, sort of threat analytics platform. Mm. And I think I alluded to most of this in the conversation um, in the sense that 
um, VMware can get more insights into customers than resellers because it's got the data. And I've been talking about this in the terms of context with Cisco and what it's doing for its um, monitoring of customer networks. So the idea that there's a cloud model and the same with Juniper Mist, by the way. Um, of, right. And as extreme as we'll yeah, be talking about. Yeah, extreme cloud. Yes. So everybody's doing it now. Um, you know, as I said, and I think I've said this consistently over the last three years is it's your data you're giving to the vendor to sell back to you with information. Is that a vi is that, you know, which is fine as long as you understand that that's the trade-off that you're making. Um, but yes, I agree. And I think I said at the time, and part of the reason I say that the end of resellers is in sight is that the vendors will have a lot more insight into what's happening at the customer site than the reseller does. Yes, the reseller might have a face-to-face -face relationship and the customer might be saying one thing, but there'll be hard data saying another. And there's a bridge between the two, but I think ultimately over time that the technology, you know, we, we have these solutions and we talk about them being custom for each customer. Every company does its own customization. And I think ultimately technology becomes like cars, like hyperconverged was a step in that direction. Stop having you know, hand-selected mm -hmm. servers, you know, with a billion different hard drives and controllers and graphics cards and all that, you know, GPUs, just standardize on a bunch and you'll be able to get along a lot faster. And the more we standardize, the more we approach, I'm selling a car. And so then as diversity shrinks, do you really need, you know, 20 different types of storage? Do you really want a Pure and an EMC and a V-Block and a you know, and a, a block storage and object storage and, you know, all the different things. Or do you just want yep. one that's going to debt you good enough? And I would say to you that the public clouds give you a very limited choice today. So how much diversity do you need? Right. I mean, that's sort of one of the constant tensions in IT between consumability and usability versus customization. Yeah. Like you can customize your car. You can have leather seats. You can have a different color paint job, but it doesn't. The car doesn't change. The shape doesn't change. The engine doesn't <laughs> right. change. It's, it's still an engine, a chassis, some seats. Yeah, and, and in the case of electric cars, um, it's very interesting in that uh, Volkswagen is using the same sled, which is the same wheels, gearbox, batteries, everything, and the only thing that's different is what goes on top of the drivetrain between right. entire models, like entire families of product, and there'll be some electronics. Some of them will have more batteries, some will have less, but the chassis remains the same, the wheels remain the same, the engine remains the same, and so on and so forth. So it's very it's very confusing. I think over time we're going to see the market simplify, especially as the market shrinks. So if you believe that the public cloud is one, which we propagated last week when we said with Broadcom buying VMware, VMware will you know, slow its pace of innovation, move to a more profitable model and increase the prices so that Broadcom can extract cash. Well, that's an acceptance that public cloud is probably the future and Broadcom will then you know, leverage its VMware relationships to sell more of its own products, but it's not so much interested in letting VMware innovate and find new markets for itself. It's much more believed to be an organization that will say this market is mature, it's static, and this is the game that, and we're done. That may or may not be mm. true. We don't know, but that's our speculation. And that seems to be the opinion of most people. VMware will continue as is with, you know, incremental changes to the system. If you believe that, then eventually VMware becomes more like a commodity and less like a transition, you know, or a change. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate everyone reaching out to follow up. If you've got comments, if you've got corrections, or you just want to leave us a note, uh, you can hit us up at packetpushers.net slash FU. And as always, the FU stands for follow up. 
depending on the tenor of the note, you never know. Mm. Really appreciate your feedback and it is anonymous. You know, we haven't done any names here or companies. Um, there's no need to to do that. We can take on your topics. Uh, if you want us to answer you, give send us an email so we can reply, but that would also be in confidence. Sure. And if you want credit, just let us know. Yeah, you can use my name, but otherwise we'll keep it anonymous just so everybody feels more comfortable. All right, let's get into some actual news. Extreme Networks, they've announced several new products, including SD-WAN, an AI op service, and a new switch to support Wi-Fi 6E APs. We'll start with SD-WAN. So back in 2021, Extreme uh, acquired SD-WAN hardware and software from Ipanema Networks, and it's now being rolled out again and rebranded as Extreme uh, SD-WAN, and it's being managed under Extreme Cloud IQ. That's Extreme's cloud-based management platform that also manages Extreme switches and APs. So it's brought this SD-WAN into the whole Extreme family. Speaking of sending data into the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> right, there we are. <laughs> this is where we are. And it makes sense because Extreme, I still, I sort of have the sense that this is very much a catch up where Extreme is, you know, slow following. I, I generally would say that Extreme is a very successful company at this point in time. It hasn't been so, but it's doing quite well now. Uh, but it's a slow follower. Cisco is also, is a fast follower. It tends to follow the trends in the market and will make acquisitions and then, leverage them for cash flow, um, and then grow the sales by putting them into the channel. So Cisco is really a sales organization in from a, as a business strategy, or that's part of its value in any case. Um, and so what's happening here is Extreme seems to be saying like the market for SaaS is mature, so we need to be starting to do that. They bought Ipanema in 2021, and now they're adding SD-WAN to the portfolio. But what they've done is taken Ipanema and then integrated it with their Extreme cloud platform. So it's very cloud-centric or off-prem-centric. Is that what you got? Yeah, exactly, that they now have an SD-WAN offering for customers that are looking for one that already are bought into the Extreme cloud management platform and like working with Extreme. And now they can say, yes, you can also get SD-WAN from us. Uh, and as we've commented before, we've been talking about SD-WAN forever. So it feels like everybody by now who wanted one could have one, but there still seems to be a lot of growth left. So yes, Extreme is a slow follower, but I don't think they're too late to this morning. No, the SD-WAN market, like we started in 2014 to 2022, market share, right. you know, depending on who you believe is somewhere between 10 to 40%. Which is, which is a big spread, you know, after. Right, it was a big spread, but still plenty, still of, plenty room, of room, even yeah. at the high end. Um, the interesting part here is that they're saying they've got AI ops here, so they've actually got... This is the second announcement, yeah, that's called Extreme Cloud IQ Copilot AI Ops. That is a mouthful, but this is also a cloud-based service. It's using ML and AI to analyze data from all of your Extreme gear, and the idea is that it can help you detect anomalies and then offer up suggestions for... Uh, fixes and troubleshooting. It feels like someone in extreme marketing is using an ASN one, ASN dot one notation like SNMP does. You know, extreme cloud dot IQ dot copilot dot AI. It really feels that way. Uh, but yeah, okay. You're like you know, you've got to have all the good words in there. I guess it's you know, cloud IQ is their cloud service. Copilot is their operational platform, and this one's using AI operations. So um, I would imagine right. that it's somewhat behind Juniper Mist, so it might be an aspiration to compete with Juniper Mist AI. You know, Mist has got, what, a five- to seven-year head start on people um, and can demonstrate that it's capable, but Extreme operates in a unique market in its own right. One of the interesting things was they keep talking about the digital twin thing. Did you get much on that? Yeah, so they did mention Digital Twin in the press release, and that caught my eye because we've been talking a lot about Digital Twins with folks like Appstra and Nokia, who are essentially building a virtual real-time copy of your data center mm -hmm. network. This is not that. Uh, this Digital Twin feature is essentially they're building a virtual copy of your switches and APs that are in the cloud. 
Uh, and what you can use this for is, you know, if you need to stage or validate a bunch of switches or APs, you can sort of see what they look like in the cloud, copy them, and then roll them out. It is not um, at this point like basically a copy of your entire network and how all the devices interconnect. It's just a copy of the device itself mm. if you want to use it for testing and troubleshooting. Yeah. Well, just this whole idea of a digital twin or a, you know, the model um, and Nokia particularly, we've done a couple of shows with them around their idea of it that, um, and they've also got their container lab where you can fully emulate the, your network in containers, in a, you know, in the system and test your changes against it. Um, so it's just super interesting to see that people have advanced the model to this idea that it's twinning the network instead of just calling it, uh, modeling. I think it's a bit of marketing speak, or maybe it's a reaction to people in the market, not getting on top of what a model is. Uh, my thinking is what th th they are not calling this a model because it's not a model of the network. It's just a, a virtual copy of the OS, the state, and the configuration of your switches and APs. And they have that information because they're managing the devices in the cloud already. So they're just giving you a cloud copy that sort of stays up to date with the state and configuration of the actual device. Mm -hmm. um, so you can sort of use that to sanity check devices. Yeah. I think over time, they will probably start moving toward more of an intent-based and network model, but they're not yeah. nearly there yet. Yeah. This is just a, a sort of a virtual copy of the state and config of each individual device, not how those mm. devices are connected to other devices. And I think also their security offering is pretty immature. So we know that um, Extreme doesn't have any security, doesn't have much in the way of firewalls or threat intelligence. And so in this right. case, they've partnered with Checkpoint to do advanced cloud security seems odd. Yeah. That's back to the, yeah, that's back to the SD-WAN. If you want to shoot uh, traffic into a cloud-based security service from uh, Extreme's SD-WAN, they're partnering with Checkpoint out the gate and they said they will add others to that. It's list. an odd choice. I haven't seen anybody partner with Checkpoint <laughs> that I can recall, you know, Zed Scatler, Cloudflare, you know, a bunch of others, but you know, <laughs> right. Checkpoint. Yes. I didn't even yes. know they had one. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, we got more news to get to you, but first we'll take a quick break to tell you about uh, our sponsor, IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. And here's a special offer for Network Break listeners sign up and save 30% off all plans. There are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles, and you can become a CyberSec Pro with online training. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There are more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. They've got engaging hosts who present information in a talk show format. They're live every day and shows go studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are listed by category, certification, and job role, so you can find what you need. You can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand worldwide via Roku, Apple TV, PCs, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak to get 30% off all plans. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. Save 30% off all plans. All right, back to the news. At the RSA conference this June, Cisco dumped a truckload of security announcements, particularly around cloud security. So just bear with me while I walk through it. Two big ones caught my eye. One is a strategy for multi-cloud and hybrid cloud security. The second is announcement of Cisco's full SASE offering. Yeah, I didn't, I sort of, you know, you've heard me talk about the fat lady sings before, Drew. The idea, mm -hmm. <laughs> it does sort of feel like Cisco's realized that that whole market has gotten away from them and there's mm -hmm. a whole lot of competitors in that space. Uh, and in particular, um, that companies like Palo Alto and Fortinet have done a much better job of building out, building from security into SD-WAN and SASE. And I think Cisco's sort of realizing that if it's going to follow, it needs to move now to be a fast follower, but it clearly isn't ready because it doesn't have a whole lot 
it's saying it's got plans to do it, but it hasn't got a product to offer yet. Is that, or am I reading it wrong? There are two things. So uh, let's focus on the second one, which is their uh, SASE service, Secure Access Service Edge offering. I think there's actual meat here. Uh, they're calling this Cisco Plus Secure Connect Now. It is a SASE service available in several countries. Uh, it's essentially powered by their Meraki cloud and uses their Meraki SD-WAN, but it will shoot you into a cloud-based security service that does have things like L7 firewalling, IPS, CASB, Secure Web Gateway, DLP, and other features. That feels late, doesn't it? That feels like way later than everybody else. Um, I mean, I, I guess I don't think so because yeah. I, we're talking about SD-WAN. There's still a bunch of market there. SASE is like, how old is that? A year, if yeah, that? So I, I, I don't think, I don't, I, I don't really think Cisco's late here. Okay, fair enough. It just feels like, I mean, I, I've said a few times, I didn't think that Cisco's security business unit was doing a great job uh, and I think the business unit model is actually doing Cisco a disservice here. I think Cisco needs to realize that security is in everything. It's not a sep it's kind of a separate thing, but it's kind of not. Does that make sense? Like No, absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. And that's what we're seeing is that firewalls aren't firewalls, they're just edge routers now. And they're application inspection and they're just a, a center node uh, and they're just one part of the SD WAN to some cases. They use might do VPN or SSL termination, but we can do the same thing on any SD-WAN appliance these days. And so mm -hmm. the, the idea that security is just built right in, but at the same time, companies have to find ways to account for all of this work and to not have teams at cross-purposes. So you don't, you generally believe that if you're going to do security, you want to have it in its own business unit so you can build up security expertise and that would be separate from routing or SD-WAN or so forth. So Cisco's got a challenge here to bring it together. Our security companies had a much better time of it because they just treat everything as a, as a security appliance. Um, so I've got questions about how well Cisco is doing this or how fast Cisco can execute on this. Sure, if you're ledgering... I also have questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure, if you're le ledgering Meraki, but Meraki's SASE was fairly simplistic. Like Meraki is a, is a retail product or a consumer product, a small business product. And if they're going to say, we've now got SASE, what's the what's the benefit? Are they going to leverage on top of the Meraki service and say, well, that's good enough for enterprises? It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like that makes sense. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Cisco was coupling uh, Meraki SD-WAN with this offering mm -hmm. uh, and not Viptela because my take was that, yes, the Meraki SD-WAN is pretty vanilla, pretty basic mm -hmm. compared to a more robust feature set of from Viptela, but what I think they're aiming for is ease of use. We need to make this as easy to consume as possible. And that's where I think Meraki shines. Mm. But equally, Cisco has a whole range of SASE compatible products. So it's got the umbrella, which is the content scanning and the mail scanning. It's got the DNS, right. you know, for threat intelligence and for, it's got a threat intelligence unit. It's got a firewall business unit, but I wonder if Cisco can disrupt itself and compress all of those into a single product. Yeah, that's where my questions come up. How well is Cisco integrating this cloud-based capability so that as your packets move through the service, it's not like go to this box, then go to this cloud and get decrypted again, and then go to that service and then and, you know traffic's bouncing all over the place as opposed to a very clean integrated architecture. Yeah. That's where I think my hesitation or, lies. Or, you know, I have to pay a license to this BU and a license to this BU and a license <laughs> to this BU. And in each one, there's 20 licenses for each business unit. And then customers right. um, express some frustration about how difficult it is to, you know, um, right. you know, it fits Cisco's model, but does it fit customers' model? Are questions I'm 
I think Cisco definitely can do this, but I, I wonder how quickly Cisco can transform itself to deliver a unified product offering rather than something that's a bunch of smaller product offerings sort of unified together from business units that had. Like Cisco has all of this. It should have been there from day one with this. It has, you know, the DNS service, the, the, the proxying, the, you know, right. and the teams, and it has all of the infrastructure and the cloud skills that it needs. Why is this so late? Is something in the back of my mind if you want to take that perspective. Absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about when Cisco originally tried to do its own SD-WAN because they were like, well, yeah, we have all the pieces and we just need to Frankenstein it together. And then, you know, the market kind of looked at it and went, uh-uh, no. And so they went out and bought two other companies. <laughs> well, the market certainly looked at it, but then people <laughs> they right. didn't really like it. So no. they went somewhere else. I exactly. Think, yeah. Yes. It didn't work out quite as well as they'd, as, as they'd hoped. Yeah. I, I'm encouraged, frankly, that I think Cisco is channeling this through Meraki because of Meraki's reputation for consumability, usability. Um, but again, my hesitation is on how well Cisco has integrated its uh, all the security pieces mm. in its cloud architecture. That still is a, a, a warning flag for me. Yeah, I would scratch this and see how rough this is underneath, whether it's an early stage product, in which case maybe wait patiently to see how it works out. Right. Uh, and I'm assuming we're recording this on the Friday before Cisco Live 2022, and I presume there'll be more details uh, as Cisco Live rolls out. Um, quickly want to talk about the second announcement. Um, they're also, Cisco's rolling out its vision, which means we don't have anything yet, for cloud-based security service called Cisco Security Cloud. And this is delivering, quote, end-to-end -end security across hybrid multi-cloud environments, end quote. So I think this is a larger product talking about integrating security wherever you are, whether it's, you know, you've got workloads in public cloud, in private cloud, on-premise, wherever. This seems like a broad very expansive vision, but again, no real details on how they're planning to execute it. Yeah, which is interesting because Cisco's um, thrown down on an initiative based around the OpenID Foundation, and it's something that they call um, shared signals and events. Um, now, OpenID Foundation has been around since 2007, and at one stage they were going to give you a universal login to the internet, mm. um, and that kind of went away when Google and Facebook started giving you their own logins, which people have gone on to discover is not a very good idea. Um, but this was meant to be a, an open source, open standard. Um, there are other other standards initiatives to do threat sharing and threat signaling. So the idea here is that if you've got one tool in the multi in this place and one tool in this place, there should be a way to share all of those events and signals together so that you can send them into an anal analytics platform. There's several initiatives, three or four that I can think of, but this one really does seem to be in an odd place that nobody else is. The initiative Shared Signals and Events, I went to OpenID to have a look at it, started in 2017 and doesn't seem to have done much over the five years that it's been operating. So I've got questions, questions. More questions, yes. This, these announcements definitely do raise more questions than they answer. Um, mm. And I did a lot of digging, so we've got plenty of links in the show notes if you want to read more. And as I said, I hope we get more information from Cisco uh, next week. So I'm sure we'll be back to visit this, but yeah, links in the show notes if you want to start reading up on it now. Sure, sure. All right. Two more quick stories before we wrap. First, Arista has announced two new L1 switches that promise ultra low latency. They're targeted at high frequency traders, particularly in the financial industry where microseconds matter. <laughs> Not much to say here, except these are L1 switches. Uh, obviously the HFT market is really unique. They have these really sophisticated software platforms that do automated trading. And the faster you can run the software and the faster you can get to the exchange, you might get several milliseconds of advantage to close an order or get an order on the market before your competitor does. Right. And 
these are really, really unique. They use FPGAs to actually flip the signal straight from one port to the other, almost as if it's wired together. But at the same time, they're actually able to take copies of the packets and put timestamps on them so that they can replay them in the future so they can know how fast the app is running and also to log all transactions in a way that meets the market uh, obligations, auditing requirements. Right. And so these plat switches are really unique. Um, Arista's been doing the HFT for a while. Uh, partic- they have a, been getting traction in the financial markets and displacing Cisco to some extent. This is, this is a very broad comment, but they've had success there in the financial companies uh, in terms of competing with Cisco. And so this seems to lean into that so that, hey, and Arista's got this when this is something Cisco doesn't have. Right. Uh, and Arista actually bought its way into this market back in 2018. They bought a, a company called Metamaco that was making these switches and Arista has now brand moved them over to the Arista platform. They run EOS. They're managed by Cloud Vision. Um, one thing that caught my eye is that one of the switches in this series is actually using the Tofino Barefoot Programmable ASIC. Um, that's an interesting use case for this uh, programmable silicon. Yeah, that'll as the packets come off, you know, as you duplicate the packets as they move through or timestamp them, that'll giving you a programmable forwarding engine. Also gives you a uh, security monitoring network, out of band monitoring network, so you can search for threats and intelligence. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on them. We'll move on. Our last story: uh, British Telecom and Ericsson they've inked a deal for BT to sell private five G networks using Ericsson gear. Ericsson calls it the first major commercial private 5G deal in the UK. Under the deal, Ericsson is going to provide equipment, including radio units and network controllers. Uh, BT is going to handle deployment and ongoing support, and that's from a story in the register. Yeah, this private 5G thing seems to keep getting legs. There's all sorts of announcements. Now, it would be fair to say that some of these announcements are just announcements. This is a multi-million pound. That's not hundreds of millions, Drew. (laughs) (laughs) it's coffee money for a bt coffee money so i think what bt is saying here there's where they get asked for 5g they're going to partner with ericsson to bring it forward um this seems to be bt generically this is not bt global services which does enterprise managed services or something like that this does seem to be um the ability to say if if a customer comes to bt and says we want to deploy a private 5g bt's got a business partner that's going to have that product solution because bt um, is effectively a reseller, and it has the licenses to give Spectrum and to manage these things for customers. Right. Uh, I did read the Ericsson press release, and they cited market research that predicts five private 5G is going to grow 40% year over year through 2028, which is pretty nice. Um, but the total market value of that growth in by 2028 will be $14 billion. So big growth, not a big pie yet. <laughs> when you consider that Cisco does $13 billion a quarter, right. not huge. <laughs> not so, huge. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't th- like I've said private five G is evolving. It's not, and and there's potential, but there's no guarantee that it'll survive. Right. Maybe if you want to get on the ground floor of something, you could look into private five G. Yeah. All right. That wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking with Palo Alto Networks on the evolution of zero trust network access. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we're going to talk about zero trust network access and how it's evolving to provide more comprehensive and consistent security while also incorporating user experience. My guest is Anupam Upadhyaya. He is VP of Product Management, Cloud Security, Dem, and AI Ops at Palo Alto Networks. Anupam, welcome back. That's quite a title. You're in charge of a lot of things, but let, let's focus in on uh, ZTNA. Network access, it's been a problem for about as long a time as we've had networks. So what's driving the conversation around zero trust network access in particular? Thank you first for having me. Um, I think if you look at the past 24 months since the pandemic set in, work has become an activity, right? We are working from home, from offices, from a coffee shop, right? 
work is no, no more a location. So that's one thing, users everywhere. And the second part is applications that used to be centralized now are all over the place. Some applications still are in data center, but a lot of applications are moving to SaaS or to cloud deliver. And that's creating this conversation. How do I securely connect my users to my applications irrespective of where they are? And that's really driving that zero trust conversation through. And zero trust, what we're talking about there is um, sort of moving away from that old school VPN where it's essentially one tunnel where I become a node on the network and boom, I've got access to everything. The notion around zero trust is more fine grained. And now you're saying that sort of the, the, the current crop of ZTNA products that we're seeing are falling short in some way. What, what, how do you see the space? Yeah, Andrew, like you said, zero trust is exactly zero trust. By default, thou shall deny everything. When there's no policies, everything gets dropped. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about ZTNA, right? When application was centralized in the data center, right? And everything was sort of in a neat boundary. Users were sitting in a branch, applications in data center. ZTNA, the old school ZTNA started mapping applications to ports and IPs. And that really violates the principle of least privilege, right? And why? Because when you look at a lot of applications, utilize a dynamic port range, right? Think about Microsoft SQL Server. And in that case, you need to really give access to these applications or a broad port range. And that just makes access a bit too much, right? What happens if a rogue application starts listening on those ports? What happens if the application developer wants to add one more port to that <laughs> to support one more protocol? Like that just becomes a problem, right? That's the first big problem. And then do the second challenge is, this whole thing of allow and ignore. So if you go to the heart of zero trust, uh, network access, one, and I will call it 1.0, Drew, the old school, there's this concept of access broker, which establishes the connection between the user and the application, mm -hmm. which means you first go, go to the access broker, say, hey, I'm Drew. Access broker uh, verifies, yep, this is Drew. And Drew has access to these applications. And once that is done, Drew has a path to the application. So now what's happening is all traffic for that session now is implicitly trusted, mm -hmm. which means that's a recipe for disaster because your user behavior can change. You can get infected, Drew. Your device can inf get infected or applications can go rogue. And if you really go back to this log 4G example, right, which we all know, which was a vulnerability on, a, on an Apache server, right? If let's say your device is infected, and it reaches to uh, uses this Apache vulnerability and starts planting malware. You are a verified user. That application, the data center is a verified application. You are not really stopping for that with 1.0. That's point number two. The third, which sort of leads into this is, there's no application traffic inspection either, which means that that part about malware, right? When, if someone is trying to inject malware, using the user device or application, you do not have the ability to identify or respond to that malware. And then the fourth one, data is everywhere true. Today yep. our data is sitting in Google Drive, in uh, network file systems, in uh, Microsoft Office. You, 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 you pick your favorite application, right? You need a solution that provides data protection. And because in ZTNA, after that access is granted, it's a direct user to app model, you are not really providing data protection, especially for private applications. 
And this leaves a good portion of the organization traffic vulnerable to data exfiltration. And then last but not the least, you want a consistent security and data security posture for all your applications. ZTNA really 1.0 really focused on solving that for private applications. So to start thinking about cloud-based applications or applications that utilize dynamic ports, like I said, or server-initiated applications like support help desk apps uh, where servers connect to remote devices, mm -hmm. you do not have support for that in ZTNA 1.0. And then when you think about SaaS applications, ZTNA 1.0 does not support that either. So those sort of become the five points where the current ZTNA solutions fall short. Okay, and one thing I want to clarify to understand what you're saying is uh, you, you mentioned one of the issues with, you know, you go through an access broker, you get your permission and off you go. Your issue isn't necessarily with the access broker. It's the fact that once you have that permission, it's sort of carte blanche and there's no rechecks during that session. Is that the issue? That's absolutely true. Carte blanche or allow and ignore, right? Mm -hmm. Once you have established trust, now I'm allowing and ignoring everything. You're, you're spot on. Okay. And then another problem you're raising is that you're saying what you're calling ZTNA 1.0 is essentially focusing on the limited set of apps where the next generation wants to focus on cloud, private, uh, server-initiated apps, and whether the user is you know at a remote location, in a branch, at a coffee shop, or even on-premises uh, at the campus HQ. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. So then uh, what are you recommending to customers to sort of uh, overcome these um, shortcomings of a ZTNA product or solution? So look, like you said, Drew, right? It's a bit of a paradigm shift. Users everywhere, applications everywhere. And to solve that secure connectivity need to connect users to applications for today's hybrid world, we uh, are talking about ZTNA 2.0. And ZTNA 2.0 is delivered on five pillars. We talked about least privilege access to, right? Where a user and application should come together. ZTNA 2.0 identifies application as a layer seven construct. Mm -hmm. When you think about 1.0, that was port and IP, that's a layer three, layer four construct. So first thing is privilege of least access between user and application by, by identifying applications at layer seven. That's the first principle. Okay, so that's, you know, I'm thinking sort of the difference between the traditional sort of stateful firewall and the next-gen firewall where I want not just, I know I'm allowed to go to port 80 and port 443, but I want very specific controls around what applications across the web I'm able to use. You're saying that's what this next generation of ZTNA should be able to do. Yeah, like you said, right? You do not want to rely on antiquated mechanisms like ports or IPs. You really want to understand the application footprint. So that's where doing an inline decrypt of the packet and looking at the signature of the application to figure out what the application is, the only foolproof way to figure out what an application is. And on that point, Drew, look, uh, let's say we are chatting on Zoom. Now, Zoom is an application. It also has sub-applications like chat, file sharing, and so on. The concept of App ID at Palo Alto, which powers our Prisma Access, as well as our next-generation firewalls, allows us to also look at applications at a granular level like chat. So with our app ID, I could allow access to Zoom, but really block that chat function. So that gi it gives you that fine-grained uh, granularity that is required for uh, applications of today, right? So that's the first part. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. Then the second part, like we said, once you have established that user-to-app connectivity, you require that continuous trust verification. If a user behavior changes, application behavior changes, or the device posture changes, let's say you have 
an agent uh, on, on the device, which is doing contest monitoring of the security posture, and that agent gets disabled. The ability to look for this, continuously monitor for any change, and more importantly, if you see a change, the ability to uh, block that user device or application till remediation happens becomes the second pillar. That's the continuous trust verification. Okay, can you talk a little bit more about continuous trust verification? Because I'm curious about how you actually do that because you're talking about essentially looking for changes in some kind of element at the endpoint or at the user behavior, right? That is correct. So let's talk about how Paul Alto is doing it, right? This really goes down the concept of three things. User ID, device ID, right? And app ID. Mm-hmm. User ID uh, identifies Drew. Device ID identifies the device along with the posture that that device has, right? The host information profile. And app ID at layer seven identifies the app. And Drew, we are using, we are constantly monitoring these things, the user ID, device ID, app ID, and looking at the application flow to see if anything has changed on these three parameters. And let's say we see, hey, I saw that hip posture not happening on the device ID, so on the device. And once that gets signaled to me, now what I can do is I can quarantine that device. Hmm. So that's what we mean by continuous trust verification. You continuously for the application flow on a continuous basis are really monitoring for these three attributes. Okay, so we've had least privilege, continuous trust verification. Now you're going to introduce the third of the five pillars. Yes, sir. Let's talk about the third. We are a security company. We got, and when you think about zero trust, zero trust is about security, right? Thou shall trust nobody. So that is where the continuous security inspection becomes very important. You are looking at all traffic, application to user, and looking at that to see if any malware is being introduced, any suspicious URLs are being sent, if DNS is being used for some threat attacks. And Drew, there's a very interesting statistics, right? If you look at internet-facing traffic, uh, we have a Unit 42 report which talks about 80% of internet threats are coming from DNS. Right. So when you start thinking about all this traffic, whether it's going to private application or public applications, the ability to have that continuous security inspection at every layer, DNS, URL, filter, uh, uh, URL, malware, the actual traffic becomes very important. So that's the third pillar. The fourth pillar drew is data. We talked about data, data being everywhere. You require a only channel data strategy, right? The ability for you to protect your data whether it sits in private applications, public applications, in the cloud, in the data center, and irrespective of where the user is, you need to protect all your data. And then last but not the least, the ability for you to protect and secure all your applications across the entire enterprise. So do these become the five key pillars, right? Least privilege, continuous trust verification, continuous security inspection, protect all data, protect and secure all application uh, are the five pillars for ZDNA 2.0. Okay, so let, let's talk about how you're actually making that happen. I, you, you mentioned an endpoint agent. We, we also mentioned a broker. What, what are the pieces here that uh, Palo Alto Networks put together for Zero Trust? Uh, the, the excellent question. So let, let's first start with uh, the first part, right? The least privilege access. And before we go there, right? Remember Palo Alto Networks, we invented app ID, user ID, and device ID. And these are very context-based. And let's now delve into three of these and talk about how they tie back to those pillars. So we talked about 
the principle of least privilege access where I'm identifying applications at a layer seven layer. And that's where the app ID capabilities uh, come in. We continuously gather information about the session, the application handshakes, the application behavior, the stateful protocol, the signature. And we're truly identifying the application that allows us to enforce that least privilege access because we know what the application is. The second thing is user ID and device ID. These controls are similar and they're also continuously gathering information about the users and the device. So the combination of user ID, device ID, and app ID are enforcing two things. One is least privilege access, and the second is that continuous trust verification. I will not allow and ignore anymore. I'll use the context from user ID, app ID, device ID to see if there are any changes in the user posture, device posture, or application posture, and take preventive mechanisms if I see a change, right? So that becomes the second part. Uh -huh. Then we talked about security inspection. And this is where our full set of capabilities come in, right? The key DNA of uh, Palo Alto Networks, when you think of things like wildfire and threat protect with protected against malware, and which is also our sandboxing solution, advanced URL security, which is our URL solution, which is not a database-based solution, but actually leverages inline capabilities and machine learning to automatically classify bad versus good URLs as and when we see them. And the third part becomes advanced threat prevention along with that. Then we talked about DNS security. Our DNS security is again uh, based on machine learning and inline. And in fact, our DNS security is the most effective in the industry. When you start thinking about attacks like dangling DNS or the ability to ultra slow DNS tunneling. That is a fancy way of saying, I'm going to use the DNS protocol to inject small bytes and assemble that packet to inject malware in your uh, application. These are becoming very innovative ways of, uh, for attackers to go and attack uh, the customer and their applications. So our capabilities of, uh, um, on uh, DNS security sort of uh, stop that. Then beyond that, when we, have, we talked about these uh, core capabilities, wildfire, URL, threat prevention, and DNS. Then comes when you start thinking about applications, when you start thinking about SaaS applications, a lot of organizations want to have some apps that they will sanction. They say, yeah, these are sanctioned, I'm going to allow them. Some they're going to tolerate. Okay, I'm going to let users use them, but I really want visibility and control about them. And then the third one is no, I'm not going to allow these. I'm going to deny this. And our SaaS security enables that outcome. And then last but not the least, our advanced DLP capabilities, which applies to all applications for private applications and SaaS applications with the same DLP policies, protects uh, for data exfiltration across all these applications. Mm -hmm. So this is how we sort of do that continuous security inspection. And then we talked about uh, the ability to secure all applications. Our Prisma access solution is a cloud-delivered security solution, which protects all your applications, doesn't matter. You're doing inline inspection for all your traffic, doesn't matter, matter what the end destination is, whether it's a cloud application, whether it's a infrastructure service, or whether it's data center, you're protecting all your applications. All right, well, that does bring us to our time limit. If folks are interested in finding out more, where would you send them? I would send them to uh, paulalternetworks.com slash sassy, S-A-S-E slash Z-T-N-A. Okay, nice and easy. That's paulalternetworks.com slash sassy, 
slash ZTNA, and we will have that show link uh, and others in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, Anupam, thank you for joining us. Thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. And of course, thanks to you for being a listener. If you enjoyed this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.